As usual, we have some exciting and interesting things to cover tonight. And uh, we have a lot to cover. We're actually going to kind of shift gears now in our study of Genesis. But you'll be pleased to know that though we have a lot to cover, I actually cut out a big section that we'll do on Sunday because it would have been a little over the top. Probably going to be over the top anyway, but that's all right. Um, I hope you realize that for those of you who have gone down this road so far, that we have, in just over three months, we have covered one-third of all human history. The first 11 chapters of Genesis cover a third of human history. 2,000 years are covered in these first 11 chapters. Now what's going to happen as you get on into chapter 12 is it's going to be like downshifting and slamming on the brakes and slowing down almost to a crawl by comparison. Because in Genesis chapter 1 through 11 we cover 2,000 years, but from chapter 12 through the end of the book, through chapter 50, we will only cover 350 more years in the whole scheme of things. You'll see why in a moment. By the way, let me just say, if you are uh, visiting, if you're here like for the first time tonight or the second time, um, welcome. The rest of you, you're just not welcome. <laughs> what that means. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm glad you're all here. And this is, again, one of my two favorite times of the week to get together with each of you and, and uh, to open up the Word and see what God has for us. Well, let me give you something that I think will help put Genesis in perspective. Back when we studied, uh, several of us went through a study in the book of Revelation, the thing that, that I kept saying every week because it was so apparent to me and so true is that the book of Revelation is not a hard book to understand because it comes with its own divine outline. And that was something that just every week I kept hammering because so many people will come to Revelation and say, I just, I'm not going to touch that book because it's so hard to understand. But by contrast, or not... By comparison to that, the book of Genesis is very similar. Now, people will read it, people will enjoy the stories, but when it comes to the Old Testament in particular, people will say, it's just too much to keep all together in my head. I, I don't know how to track it. It's, it's so much history. Why do we need all that history? Just tell me about Jesus and we'll be done with it. Well, the thing is, Genesis is not a hard book to understand. And I want to give you an easy way to remember it. You have eight fingers on your two hands. You can remember the book of Genesis very easily. So I've even given you an opportunity to have lost a couple of fingers and still remember these things in Genesis. The first four things to remember, chapters 1 through 11, the first 2,000 years, we cover four major events. Four major events. Creation, the fall, the flood, and Babel. If you can remember that, you, remember, you can remember the first 2,000 years of Earth's history. And the first section, the first part of Genesis. The creation, the fall, the flood, and Babel. Four major events. Now from chapter 12 on, we're going to shift from events to people. We're going to shift to very personal. Now you might say, well, we saw people in the first 11 chapters. Yes, we did. But now God is going to begin working his plan out through an individual and his family. He hasn't really done that before. It's always been a bigger, broader thing, but now he's going to hone it down. So in the first part of Genesis, you've got four major events, creation, fall, flood, and Babel. In the second part of Genesis, we have four major personalities, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Now, if you can remember those eight things, you have the book of Genesis in a nutshell. You've got the whole thing. It's very simple. Creation, the fall, the flood, and Babel, the first part of the book. And the second part, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Get those eight things in your mind, and you will have a great outline for which to follow the book of Genesis. 
And it will help you call to mind a lot of the things that we're going to study. As I said, we've covered a lot of time, but we've also covered lots of ground in this study. This first 2,000 years is incredibly significant. And in fact, the reason that I believe the Lord moved so quickly and covered so much ground in this amount of time, in these first 11 chapters, is basically He is laying a solid foundation for clear-thinking biblical theology. It's important to understand what happens in these first 11 chapters because literally it is laying the foundation for everything else you understand and read and study and believe in Scripture. If you get this, you will see where we're headed. Let me give you some examples. Four things you might want to jot down if you're taking notes. First off, it begins with the principal relationship. The principal relationship, the bottom line for God, it's a relationship between God and man. We saw that in creation and in the Garden of Eden. That man cre- God creates man as literally the, the crown of his creation. Psalm 8 tells us that he created man just a little lower than the angels. And over all the things of creation, they all basically are under man's care. And God gave man that place, and then God placed man in the garden, and God walked with man in the garden in the cool of the day. Relationship. The principal relationship. And from the beginning of the Bible all the way through, that has remained God's primary concern. That principal relationship, God and man. But secondly, we see a painful rebellion. We see the painful rebellion. And that's the sin and the evil intent that's in the heart of man. Coming in with the fall and the flood and Babel. We just see it over and over and over. God extends a hand and man slaps it away. God says, let me give you a way to come back. And man runs in the opposite direction. And we've seen a couple of times mentioned that the Lord knows. Remember the reason that he flooded the earth. The Lord knows that the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. The painful rebellion. Well, number three brings us to the perfect redemption. Even this is laid out in these early chapters of Genesis, the perfect redemption. We read about early traces of the redeeming gospel message, that proto-evangelism, I just like saying the word, chapter 3, verse 15. It talks about God putting enmity between the the serpent and man, and saying that he was by the seed of woman, going to crush the head of the serpent. And the seed of woman is that, that wonderful kind of secret plan that God's beginning to reveal already that a miracle is going to happen. A miracle baby will be born. That baby being Jesus Christ. We read about the embedded gospel in Genesis chapter 5 verses 1 through 10. How when you go through all of those names, the names that are listed in the genealogy of Seth, those ten names give you, if you look at their meanings, write them out like a sentence, you get the gospel in miniature. It's amazing, right there in Genesis. And we also read a lot about the early substitutionary sacrifices. The early substitutionary sacrifices. In Genesis 3.21 we saw, we saw God sacrificing animals so that he could cover Adam and Eve from their shame. In chapter 4, verse 4, we see Cain and Abel showing up to offer sacrifices before the Lord that they understood they needed to offer. And in chapter 8, verse 20, as Noah steps off the ark, we see him offering up sacrifice to God. And we talked about this. All those sacrifices all point to the ultimate sacrifice, who is Jesus Christ. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life, John 3.16. So the principal relationship, God with man, the painful rebellion, man sinning and rebelling against God, and the perfect redemption, 
that is Jesus, all of that is foundational theology. And it's all right here in the opening pages of Genesis. Number four, and the final thing, and I think we've all seen this and realized it in our study so far, is the powerful reality of God's word. How awesome is this word that we have in front of us. How amazing. How when we begin to just try to plumb its depths, we can't get to the bottom. It's so rich and so deep and so overwhelming. We've seen it beating science to the punch at every turn. And though the Bible is not a book of science, every time science says one thing or discovers one thing, the Bible's already talked about it. It's amazing how that works. We've seen the embedded wonders. We've seen the unequivocal design all pointing to the divine and not human origin of scripture. Now, I was listening this, this uh, week yesterday actually at 7 in the morning driving home from dropping Corey off at school to Greg Laurie and he was speaking on Calvary Satellite Network and I was listening to him talk and he was talking about negotiables versus non-negotiables in a church and I just I really tuned in because what he said meant, meant so much to me and played so well with what's happening with the bridge right now. He talked about negotiable things, and I think he was probably speaking to some people in the church who maybe had been complaining about the music, because he went directly to the music and said, you know, a lot of, of folks think that maybe some of the music we do here rocks a little too hard, or maybe it's a little too loud, or, or maybe we're just a little bit too casual in the way we dress. And he said, you know, those are negotiable things. Those are things that really don't matter one way or the other. They're a choice that we've made, and he said, honestly, it's a choice we've made to reach teenagers and young people especially because we want them here. And I love that because I agree. We want them here. We want our kids and our students, our teenagers to feel welcome. And as a side note, by the way, I've had a few of you just ask, what, what do you think about the kids, you know, scrambling around and stuff going on and you're in the middle of teaching and Russ gets up and hands them a box of toys. How do you feel about that, Rick? And the bottom line is I love it. I love that the kids are here. I love that they're a part of what's going on. Whether they completely get it or not, they know something special is happening. So that's important. But those are all negotiable things, how we approach stuff, how we do things, the way we run church. But there are some things that are non-negotiable. And I'll tell you the number one non-negotiable thing with me, and maybe it's good that you just know this right up front, at the Bridge Christian Fellowship, we will remain in the Word. We will remain in the Bible. We will be a Bible teaching church. We are a Bible teaching fellowship. Why? Because there is a powerful reality in God's Word. He has handed us his word. He's given it to us. And so we'll remain in it. Peter said this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. He says, So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. We have the prophetic word more sure. We have been given the future in our hands. And we would do well, Peter says, to pay attention to it. So, we've been speeding along for 2,000 years. Some of you say, yeah, it's felt like 2,000 years. But suddenly, we're about to hit these breaks. We're going to shift from the big picture to the individual. Because you see, God continues to invite us back to the garden. That's where he wants to be with us. In the cool of the day, walking hand in hand, speaking heart to heart. That's what the, God, what, what the Father intended in the very beginning. And that's what he's calling us back to. Personal, one-on-one -on -one relationships. That's what he wants with us. And scripture is replete with him calling us back to that place of closeness.
So we're going to get into Genesis chapter 12 as God picks out an individual, a man named Abram. And of all the people on earth, God looks and he sees what's going on and people are headed south again. They're headed away from him again. And so he says, I'm going to pick a man. And with this man, I'm going to begin to work my will and work my ways. And I'm going to bring some miracles to planet earth. Genesis chapter 12. Now... Honestly, before we read this, I've got to give you a little background. Because God's going to call this man Abram. He's going to talk to this man named Abram. But Abram comes from a place named or called Ur. It's a great name for a city. Ur. Where are you from? Ur. He's from Ur of the Chaldeans. Chaldea is Babylon. Chaldea is present-day Iraq. It is amazing how much biblical history happened right there, right in Iraq. Right at the crossroads of the Tigris and Euphrates River. Everything that happened, so much went on right there in Iraq. You'll see that as we continue on. But Ur of the Chaldees was three quick things, just a quick background on it. It was a highly prosperous city. Very prosperous, very wealthy. It was the seaside hotspot of the day. Ur was a place of great wealth. It would be like the Newport Beach of the Persian Gulf. For that's where it was located, down in southern Iraq. Archaeologists have discovered a lot of things about Ur. And one of the things they discovered is it was Hot Tub Central. They actually discovered in homes, in Ur, in, in the digs, they discovered the remains of, check this out, bathtubs. Now, I wouldn't have thought they would have had bathtubs way back then. But they did. This was a highly advanced civilization. And, by the way, don't think that just because something is old, that it's dumb. Just because something is discovered in antiquity, that it means stupidity. That is evolutionary thinking. Do you know that? That because when we think with an evolutionary mindset, that we have been trained to in our culture a whole lot more than we realize. When we think evolutionarily, <laughs> that's a word, what we assume is that things have, gotten from, have gone from worse to better. That man has evolved. That we have had great discoveries. That we have been, become brighter, more intelligent. That our culture is the most highly evolved culture ever to live on the face of the earth. I'm not sure that's true. Do you know that we still can't figure out how they built the pyramids? We still don't know. We don't know how they figured out the mathematics that would have been required to put those together without calculators and computers and all the things, the, the crutches that we use in our day. These were not stupid people just because they lived thousands of years ago. They were not completely out of it. And we need to re realize that. Ur also, by the way, boasted a vast and great library. A huge library in this city of Ur. So not only was it highly prosperous, but it was highly advanced for the day and the time. It was very advanced. You know, I mentioned that we can't figure out how the ancient Egyptians understood mathematics. We also still can't seem to figure out that God intended man for woman and woman for man. I don't know if you heard on the news today that the Massachusetts Supreme Court has just ruled that the legislature has to provide a, a, a clause for same-sex marriages. Now, this came up in the Massachusetts Supreme Court several months ago. They said, you need to provide same-sex marriages. The legislature came back, and by the way, the vast majority of people don't agree with it. In our whole country, don't agree with that. But the legislature came back and said, well, how about this kind of same-sex union? It's not actually marriage, but it's what some other states have done, kind of a union thing. And today, the Massachusetts Supreme Court said, no, it's unconstitutional to deny people a same-sex marriage with all the rights and privileges thereof. That's what's happening on the other side of the country, and it's spreading across the country. We haven't figured that one out yet. 
I'm not sure that we are evolving like people may think that we are. Well, anyway, I have a point here. I'll get to it. Uh, <laughs> Abraham, when you think about Ur, and you think about this idea of Abraham leaving, which we're going to see in just a moment, realize this. Abraham did not leave the dregs to go to this wonderful promised land. Abraham left a good life. He left a prosperous city. He left an advanced place. Abraham himself was a wealthy dude. And leaving Ur to go off on this journey, not knowing where it was going to be, would not be an easy thing to do. This wasn't like, man, I can't wait to get out of the desert and get to the promised land. He didn't even know what the promised land was. He didn't know what it was going to look like or what it was going to be like. He left a comfortable, wealthy, advanced homeland to sojourn in a barbarous land called Canaan. We have a couple of missionaries that we support. I don't know if you've read that on the front of the program or heard us talking about it. Phil and Jane Jones are down in Costa Rica. They lived originally in Florida, had everything going for them, very comfortable lifestyle, things were good, and they left it all and went down to Costa Rica. And you need to know right now, and this is one, one of the reasons why we support them. I just love this couple. We'll have them. Next time they're in the States, we'll have them here, and you can all meet them. They're amazing. But Phil and Jane right now are trying very hard to purchase a home I'm, you know, building a house right, right up here behind this fence. Well, they're trying to purchase a home themselves in what's called the Precario. The Precario is the bottom of the dregs of Costa Rica. It's where Nicaraguan, Nicaraguan refugees live on their Costa Rican soil. And all the Costa Ricans, even the most poor Costa Ricans, look severely down on the Nicaraguans as lower class people who don't belong there. The Nicaraguan people in the Precario have built up all of these houses, basically their ramshackle huts, lean-tos, with whatever materials they can find, and it's this literal, little like community of about 500 of these shacks leaning up together. Phil and Jane are trying to buy a house in the middle of that. They want to buy one of those. They keep offering money for it, and, and the people living there are going, what? Why do you want to buy this? And, and they've had trouble just talking, telling people, look, because we want to be here among you. And they, they don't get it. Why would you, Bill and Jane, why would you, coming from such a wonderful, prosperous place, and even to the Nicaraguans, why come from downtown Costa Rica into the dregs here with us? Why do you want to do that? Because God's put a call in their heart. Because God is moving in their lives and doing some amazing things. Same with Abraham. God put a call on his heart. One other thing to know about Ur before we get into this chapter. Ur was also very wicked and idolatrous. The flood and Babel apparently were not enough for the people of Ur. Or for many people on planet Earth at the time. But this was Abraham's background. The book of Joshua, chapter 24, verse 2. Joshua is recounting to the people some of their history. And it tells us that Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel... From ancient times, your fathers lived beyond the river, that is the Euphrates, namely Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. And then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. Folks, it's likely that Abraham and his father and his family worshipped the moon god of the Chaldeans. Now, any of you who know your Islamic history know that Islam, the symbol for Islam today, is the crescent moon. The crescent moon, why is that? Because originally, Muhammad's family god in a pluralistic, paganistic society, 
polytheistic, many different gods. The god of his family was the moon god whose name was Allah. Muhammad co-opted that god and set him up as god overall and to this day the Muslims have the crescent moon. It's possible that Abram and his family worshipped a similar deity, a moon god. Well, Abraham grew up in a land of paganism, polytheism, and pantheism. He did not begin as a man of monotheistic faith. He learned it. Well, how did he learn it? God gave it to him. God led him on a dramatic journey that would result in faith. Listen to these verses, folks. This is true for Abraham, and it's true for you, and it's true for me. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. And we really are going to get to Genesis 12 in a moment. Romans 3.10. Paul writes, and this is the bottom line for all people. And Abraham's background is important because it's similar to ours. Paul writes, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There's none who seeks God. All have turned aside and together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There's not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not sown. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Feeling good about yourself right about now? Paul says this is the bottom line. You all came from this place. We all came from this place. We all, like Abraham, were lost on a one-way trip to hell. But God did something. Something amazing. Though this is a foundational truth of human history, in spite of it, God still chooses you. God still makes a choice, like he did in the case of Abraham. Flip in your Bibles quickly to Ephesians 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Keep your finger in Genesis 12. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 1. Now this is kind of a run-on sentence, Pauline type of writing, so I want you to read it along with me so you can see it for yourself. But listen to what Paul describes here. This is your heritage. This is your legacy. This is what God has done for you and for me. Ephesians 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved, that is Jesus. In him, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention which He purposed in Him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. And in Him also... We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, verse 12, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. 
And in him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you are sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. I mean, that's huge. That is powerful. That, that's overwhelming. That, that you and I, though none is righteous, no, not one, not a single of us, could stand up to be counted and say, hey, I have it together, God. Bring me in. Just like Abraham, living in a land of paganism. And yet, and yet God chooses us. Absolutely amazing. Well, let's go to Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Abraham would eventually become the father of the faithful, but not on his own faith. No, not by himself. The Lord is about to start giving it to him. Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. Now we actually have to back up. Because something happened right before this. Genesis chapter 11. Look back at chapter 11 verse 26. Terah. Terah. Lived 70 years and became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren, she had no child. Now Terah, now look at this, verse 31. Terah took his son Abram, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they, they went out together from the Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there, and the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. It's interesting to note this, folks, that Abraham didn't set out on his own. Abraham wasn't originally called by God all by himself, at least possibly not. There's a possibility here that Terah and Abraham were both called by God because Terah had the intention, it tells us in verse 31, it says, in order to enter the land of Canaan. Terah got the family together and said, let's move out. In other words, we're going to Canaan. Terah did. But I thought Abraham, or Abram, was the one that was called. He was. Chapter 12, verse 1 again, The Lord said to Abram, Go forth for your country, from your country. That word said is probably better translated the Lord had said. So it doesn't begin in chapter 12. It begins back in chapter 11 that God had already said to Abram, Do this. But in the process, <laughs> Terah becomes involved. Terah imposes himself on Abraham's journey, and before he even has a single foot in the promised land, Abram faced terrible trouble. Think about it. Terah will trouble. Okay, a couple of things you need to know here. Wow! Two terrible problems that Abram had with Terah, his father. Number one, there's a terrible discrepancy. There's a discrepancy in Scripture. Oh no! It's one of those contradictions. We always fear it might be there, but now that we see it, it's going to blow everything away. Watch this. Terah's age at the birth of his sons is 70. We just read that. 
Terah's age at his death was 205. The difference is 135, correct? Good, just watch my math. I'll, I'll stun you. It's amazing. Acts chapter 7 verse 4 tells us Stephen is speaking to the Sanhedrin. And in Acts 7, he refers back to the situation and he says, After his father died, God had him, Abraham, move to this country in which you are now living. So Stephen says, after Terah died, Abram moved on into the promised land. Abram, at Terah's death, would have been 125 years old. Or 135, right? Because born when Terah was 70, Terah dies at 205. After he dies, Abram goes to the promised land. So Abram would have had to be 135 years old. Math right? Good. Now, look at verse 4 of chapter 12. Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Uh-oh. We have a 60-year discrepancy. We have a little problem here. What do we do with this? I mean, was Stephen wrong? Maybe that's it. Maybe Stephen, in being quoted by Luke in the book of Acts, just was kind of getting his numbers messed up, and, and he was wrong. That's doubtful. Stephen was an awfully amazing man of the word. And if you read the entire sermon that he gives in Acts chapter 7, it's pretty impressive. I can't imagine that Stephen was wrong. There's another possibility here, and that's that maybe Abram was not the firstborn son of Terah. Look back again in verse, what is it, verse uh, 26. It tells us in chapter 11, Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. So he didn't become their father all at once. It wasn't like the three were triplets. So there had to be some passage of time there. Maybe Abram wasn't the firstborn. Now there's only one problem with that, and that's usually in the listing of genealogies, the eldest is named first. Or Abram, and then Nahor, and then Haran. So what do we do with this? This 60-year discrepancy that Abram left when Terah died, but that would have made Abram 135, but the Bible tells us he's 75. That's a terrible problem. How do we know Terah was dead when he left? Could he have left before Terah died? That's the question. Now, Stephen says he left after his father Terah had died. But how had he died is the question. What do you mean? I think it's possible that believing that Abraham did was not at the time of Terah's physical death, but was at the time of Terah's spiritual death. That at the point where Terah had literally died from the Lord, at that point, finally, Abraham extricated himself from his father and said, I can't stay here any longer. I am moving on. And that brings us to the second terrible problem, and that is a terrible delay. There was a terrible delay. Genesis 12:1 again, God said to Abram, Go forth from your country, and from your relatives, and from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. Now Abraham was 50 years old when he received God's call, and he did leave Ur of the Chaldees. Problem is, he didn't leave the Chaldees. He left Ur, but he didn't leave Babylon. God said, Get out of Ur, and get out of your country. It didn't happen. He didn't leave the country at all. Now, just for your perspective, if you can imagine being down there in the bottom of southern Iraq, and you're close on, on the gulf there, and you have two options. One, you can head directly west over 600 miles over to Canaan. That's where God wanted to go. Or where they did go, you can head northwest up to Haran. And then from Haran on to Canaan would be another 400 miles. So you've got 600 miles this way, 6 that way, and 400 down that way. 
Abraham and Terah and the fam all left together, but they headed right up to Haran and not over to Canaan. And the Bible tells us they settled there. Literally they settled there for 25 years. God said, go to Canaan. And Abraham said, okay. And off he went to Haran, not Canaan. And in Haran, they stopped, they settled, they stayed. Not to mention the fact that Haran was a border town on the edge of Chaldea. He didn't really leave the country at all. He got to the very edge of it and kind of stopped and stayed there. I, I, I'm going, God. I'm on my way. I'm going to be there. I'm going to go to Canaan. He didn't leave his relatives either, by the way. Not only did he go with his dad and not leave Chaldea, but he didn't leave his relatives. He took his nephew along, who's going to be a lot of trouble later. He didn't leave his father's house. Terah's name. This is just amazing. Another amazing biblical fact. Terah's name means to delay. To delay. Which is exactly what happened. Terah delayed his son's journey. Somehow he got sidetracked. They lived for 25 years on the fence of Chaldea. Abraham wasn't supposed to go with Terah in the first place. So Abraham, actually Abram at this time, we'll see his name change in subsequent studies. Abram didn't really completely obey God. He kind of did. He headed in the general direction of obedience. Just didn't quite get there. He doesn't go in full obedience because he's waiting around for dad to die. And ultimately Terah does die and that brings us back to the possibility that his death was a spiritual death when Abraham left. Dwight Moody, I've, I've quoted this several times, it's one of my favorite quotes. Dwight Moody says, if you're born once, you'll die twice. But, if you're born twice, you'll only die once, if at all. What does that mean? Well, it means that if you're only born into the physical world, then you have two deaths to look forward to. The Bible tells us you've got the physical death and you've got the spiritual death. And both are coming. But, if you're born twice, that is, you're born physically, but you're also born spiritually, then you have, at most, one death to look forward to, and maybe not even that, if the rapture happens in our lifetime, which is what I'm hoping. Well, Luke chapter 9, verse 57, sheds a little more light on this spiritual death idea. Just listen to this. As they were going along the road, someone said to Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man... He didn't have anywhere to lay his head. And he said to another, follow me. But the man said, and listen to this, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. <laughs> and Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. Now stop for a moment and think about that. Someone comes up to you and says, listen, uh, I really want to follow you, Jesus, but we got this funeral this weekend and I got to take care of it. And Jesus says, ah, let the dead bury themselves. And that's kind of crass. It's a little heartless. But it's not what was going on at all. For this whole idea of allow me to first go and bury my father, this phrase was tossed around very easily in the day. It was an old saying that literally meant after my father's die after my father dies, then I'll get around to it. Now the guy's father might not die for thirty years. But I'll get around to it, you know, after my father dies. So, you know. So what's happening here is Jesus is saying, hey, follow me. And the guy's saying, okay, you know, as soon as I'm you know, out of the house after my father dies, I'm, I'm right there. I'm with you, Lord. I'm going to obey, you know, right up to the edge of Chaldea. And Jesus says, hey, don't put it off. It was a phrase of procrastination. Abraham was waiting on his dad to die while Father God 
is waiting on Abraham to live. He's waiting for Abram to step out. And listen to this. It's interesting. God doesn't speak to Abraham again until after he arrives in the promised land. He says, hey, go. I want you to go. Get out of your father's house. Head on to the promised land. And there's not another conversation between God and Abram until he's there. 25 years of relative silence from the Lord. And you've got to wonder if Abraham was saying, Wow, I, I'm not hearing from God. Lord, I'm waiting on you. You're not directing me. Did you ever, ever do that in your life? God, I just want to know what I'm supposed to do here. Will you give me some direction? I'm waiting. And God's saying, So am I. <laughs> While you're waiting on me, I'm waiting on you. I've already told you what you're supposed to do. I've already pointed the direction for you to go. Now I'm just waiting for you to get there. And that's okay. Take your time. I know the development of your faith is going to take some of that. I see this incredible compassion with God as he looks down on Abraham and says, Man, I pulled this guy out of a polytheistic, paganistic place. And now he's going to have to adjust to this one God idea. So I'm going to let him sit on it. And Abraham did for 25 years. I love this verse. Isaiah chapter 30 verse 18 says, Therefore the Lord will wait, that he may be gracious to you. Isn't that amazing? God will wait so that he can be gracious to you. And therefore he will be exalted that he may have mercy on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. So God isn't pushing Abraham. And again, you might be saying, I'm waiting on you, Lord. And he's saying, I'm waiting for you too. Understand this is a very biblical principle that faithfulness yields more to be faithful with. Faithfulness yields more to be faithful with. The more faithful I am to God, the more He's going to give me to be faithful with. We read about that in the parable of the talents. When the Master gives five talents, and then two talents, and then one talent to these three different guys, and says, hey, I want you to make something of this. And He goes away, and when He comes back, the one given five now has ten. And the one given two now has four. And the one given one now has one, because He hasn't done anything with it. And the verse is Matthew 25:21, where Jesus says, Well done, good and faithful servant, to the one who had five and made it ten. He says, You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. And then he says, Enter into the joy of your master. God doesn't just pile it on. He doesn't pile it on. He doesn't overwhelm Abraham. He lets Abraham sit and wait in Haran. He builds up our faith. And gives us a few things to handle. Look at verse 4. Genesis chapter 12. Verse 4. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him. And Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So the movement is on the way. But for just a moment. And we're going to look at this actually in depth on Sunday. But look at verse 2 and 3. Jumping around a little bit. And then we'll get back on track. And I will make. God says. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is the Abrahamic covenant. We looked before in Genesis chapter 9 at the Noahic covenant. This is the Abrahamic covenant and there are five parts to it. I'll throw them out to you very quickly and again we're going to look more closely at this Sunday morning. Verse 1, basically God says, I will show you a land. That's the first part. A promised land. 
And note on this, he hasn't made the full and complete land covenant yet. That will come in chapter 15 and there's a reason why God is waiting. But we'll talk about that another time. Secondly, I will give you a lineage. I'm going to give you a lineage. That is a great nation, Abraham, is going to come out of you. I'm going to give you a land. I will give you a lineage. Number three, I'll give you a label. A great name. And who on earth is as well known as Abraham? Even among celebrities today, if you go around the entire globe, more people, I'll bet you, will know who Abraham is than some of the celebrities, such as, I don't know, Janet Jackson, for example. Why I thought of her. Number four. He said, I'll give you a land, a lineage, a label. Number four, he said, I'll give you longevity. I'm going to protect you, Abraham. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And though it has been a hard road for the Jews, they are still here. And as we've talked about, they shouldn't be. It makes no logical sense for Israel to exist at all in this day or in any day. And yet they do. Why? Because God says, I'm going to give you longevity. I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. Just a, a quick note. It's interesting that Great Britain, in its heyday, was pretty positive on Israel. In the Balfour Declaration, which came through Great Britain, Great Britain, Britain gave Israel tons of land. They were behind this. They, remember, they owned it. They had conquest over all of those lands and many other lands in the Middle East. And as they began to parcel it out and give it away, they, in the Balfour Declaration of, I think, 1914, don't quote me on that date, I might be wrong, but in that declaration they said, here, Israel, we're going to give the Jews all of this land. And at that time, things were good. Great Britain was one of the superpowers. But Great Britain broke their word and began to parcel out Israel's land and give more and more of it away until they had very little left. And it's interesting at the same time that at least in the political scene, in the world scene, Britain began to decline and has continued to decline on the world stage. Well, I will give you, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. I'll give you longevity. And number five, I will give my love to the world through you. He says, Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All the families. Every single individual walking on the face of the earth can be and will be blessed through you, Abraham. And that, of course, is a point toward the Messiah. And this is an unconditional covenant. God doesn't say, if you go to this land. He just says, hey, go, because I'm going to do these things for you. Now remember, Abram was a pagan and an idolater. And he's just a child learning about faith by walking through it. And that's what God's doing. You know, sometimes we think of Abraham as this father of the faithful. Can I just remind you that that's Abram after the fact? That's us looking back at Abram at the end of his life. This labeled father of the faithful. You're going to see even tonight and, and on into Abraham's life, this guy was not the most faithful guy. He is not the picture of faithfulness. He is not what I would normally hold up and say, emulate this guy because he's a faithful guy. But he's called the father of the faithful and people hold him up as that. But that's Abram after the fact. What's the point? I just want to remind you, don't get caught in the game of comparison. Don't get caught in the game of comparison. If I start looking at others, there are basically two options in my life. Either I condemn and I puff myself up, or I compare and I put myself down. 
I look at a guy like Abraham and I say, man, I could never be like that. And I recall myself being in college. And in college, we went to Highland Church of Christ in Abilene, Texas. And at that church, there was a, there was a pastor who was just... One of the best speakers I had ever heard in my life. And every Sunday I would just sit there and rapt attention to this guy. Just pour forth God's word. And I would think, man, I could never do what this guy does. I, I, he's amazing. He's just so filled with the Spirit. And he really knows the word. And I'd watch him. And, and just, I'd compare myself. And, and it was really discouraging. In fact, I started out a Bible major in college. And I switched to psychology my junior year. Because I just didn't think I could do it. I was in that whole game of comparison. And I was comparing myself to a guy who had 20 or 30 years of life on me. And it changed my direction for a while. Folks, when we compare, we just put ourselves down. And when we condemn other people, it just puffs us up. So the bottom line is, don't look to other people. You look to the Lord, which is what Abraham did. He looked to the Lord. He didn't really have anyone else to look to. Once God finally got him out of Chaldea, where was Abraham going to go? He had to look to the Lord, and in so doing, his faith grew. Hebrews 12:2 tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Why? Because he's the author and the perfecter of our faith. Not some other Christian, not some other leader, not some other person that you compare yourself to. Don't compare yourself to a person. You just keep looking at the Lord. It's like a father teaching his child to walk. You can imagine God down on his knees with a, a small child, and that child is you, and God is just saying, come on, you can do it. At a girl, at a boy, you, you can do this. I'm with you. I'll catch you. And then we fall down, and God stands us back up, and he nurtures us into faithfulness. Lamentations 3.22 tells us the Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Boy, that's good to know. I means if yesterday was a bad day for you in your, in your walk with Jesus, guess what? It's new today. And if today was a bad day, tomorrow morning when you wake up, His mercies are brand new all over again. The Bible says, great is your faithfulness. And truly it is. So God's the faithful one. He's imparting this very faithfulness to Abram by walking the child through faith. Look at verse 5. Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. And thus they came to the land of Canaan. And Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Morah. And now the Canaanite was in the land. A couple of quick notes here before we move on. Shechem, where Abraham first stopped and first erected an altar in Canaan. Shechem is the same place in John chapter 4 where Jesus met the Samaritan woman and it was the first place where Jesus on earth proclaimed that he was Messiah. Same place that Abraham first worshipped God in the promised land. Jesus stops there and reveals who he is to the Canaanite woman. Amazing. One other quick note on this. It says with ominous overtones for the cursed carnal and condemned Canaanite... <laughs> It says the Canaanite was then in the land. And you almost in the reading can hear a... The Canaanite was in the land. He was there. And you know the people reading it, that's what they heard. Because the writer here is pointing this out. Hey, you remember the Canaanites? Remember we talked about this before. The first people to get copies of the Torah and read it were the people of Israel. After Mount Sinai, Moses came down, they had the copy of the Torah and began to read it to the people. And all this history they got to hear for the first time. And when they heard the Canaanite was in the land, those people that they were going to conquer, and that some of them feared, it was like, oh, those are the ones, the bad guys. They were in the land. 
Verse 7. To the Lord, now the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants, that word is seed, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. What seed? What descendants? At this point, Abraham is 75 years old and Sarai is 65, and there ain't no descendants. And for a 75-year-old man and a 65-year-old wife, the idea of descendants is beginning to be a vain thing. It's probably not going to happen. And God is saying, I'm going to give your seed this land, and Abram's going, better do it quick. Have you seen Sarah lately? (laughs) Of course, you know, he's 10 years older than she is, but that's the way men think. Have you looked at my wife? (laughs) God, by the way, interesting, he waited for Abraham and Sarah to enter the promised land before delivering the promised seed. It didn't happen in Haran. could have. But God waited until they got where they were supposed to be because faith comes first and then blessing. Faith first, blessing second. And by the way, the whole geopolitical problem in the world today is simple to solve if you read God's roadmap to peace, which as we talked about Sunday is the Bible. And God's going to expand it and delineate this promised land and the fact that it's to Abraham and not just all of his seed but to a particular seed God's going to take care of that in a couple of chapters here but right now he starts this indication Abraham this is for you it is for your seed now watch what Abraham does again verse 8 then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east and there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord And Abram journeyed on, continuing toward the Negev. A couple other things to notice here. Abraham comes and he builds an altar. And you're going to see this over and over and over in the life of Abraham. He stops in important places and he builds an altar. What does that tell you? That Abraham is a worshiper. That Abraham is one who worships God. And folks, worshiping alters your perspective. It's exactly what happens when you stop and take time to worship. It changes you. It brings you back to dependence on the Father every time you do it. And there's no magic in the music and there's no amazing thing in the talent of the people leading. Folks, the worship is a connection with God that that is unlike any other experience in your Christian life. And it changes you. Because in those moments as you're singing about the glory of the Father, as you're singing, blessed be the name of the Lord, what you're reminding yourself of and what your spirit is seeing is that God is in fact sovereign. He is in charge. He is in control. And no matter what's happening in my life, if He's the boss, it's going to be cool. It's going to be alright. Worshipping alters your perspective. But not only does Abraham build an altar, he also pitches his tent. What does that show us? It shows us that he's a sojourner. This man who lived a relatively comfortable, stable life for 50 years down in Chaldea, in Ur, and then another 25 years in the place of Haran, after that, Abraham becomes a sojourner, a pitcher of tents. He begins to move from one place to the next. And folks, as worshiping alters your perspective, so sojourning increases your vision. I'm kind of figuring that out right now in my life. That when you're not tied down to a place, when you're kind of loose and you're not sure what's going to happen next, you discover more vision. God allows you to see more things when you're not so darn tied to this world. And we all get there. Every single one of us. And it happens at very early ages. Hayden's seven years old. 
And the idea of moving to him was just unthinkable. And he's doing great. He's having a great time. <coughs> Folks, sojourning increases our vision. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 8 tells us, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed. By going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Verse 9 of Hebrews 11 says, By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise. And as, a foreign, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking, listen to this, he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. That's the city Abraham was looking for. In fact, you know where he first pitched his tent here in the promised land? Between Bethel and Ai. So what? Well, Bethel means the house of God. And Ai literally means the dump, the garbage dump. And so this is where he pitched his tent, between the house of God and the garbage dump. And I submit to you, that's where we live today. Anyone who's given their life to God is living halfway between the house of God and the dump. You don't want to go back to the dump, folks. It's where we've been. It's that place in life where we cling to the things of the earth. But no, face your tent toward the house of God. Be a sojourner in this life. Don't be tied down and, and hold on to the things of this world. They're not going to last. Man, I was walking our property yesterday. Right up back here. And I, I mean, I, these, these are not just words. This is exactly how I feel. I walk on that property and I think this is ridiculous. For a guy who every house that we've ever been in has been right next door to the next house. And I kind of figured that's fine. That's cool. A year ago, I thought I was moving back to California to live in Anaheim. You ever lived in Anaheim? It's frightening. It really is. I had been there two weeks when there were police copters shining their light in my backyard saying, Hold still there. And I'm going, Oh, what are we doing? But that's what I figured. That's, you know, story of my life. Southern California kid. And now I, I walk out on, on this acreage and I go, Why? I shouldn't be here. And if any of you, you know, agree with me, I don't know, pray for me. It's just, it's just very strange. This is not a thing that, that belongs to Cheryl and I. And we're starting to see that for the first time. And I've heard people say, my property's not mine, my house is not mine, it all belongs to the Lord. I said the same thing. I've never felt that strongly about it. For some reason, I'm supposed to have that, and I know it has to do with the bridge. I'm, I'm kind of digressing here. But folks, listen to this. What we all are truly craving in our lives is not a house, and not a, a town, not a city, not a place in which we can sink our roots and feel safe. That's not what we're craving. We are craving heaven. That's the deepest thing inside of us. We're looking for that perfect place. So don't take life and your possessions in this world too seriously. Don't pull an Abraham and live in Haran for 25 years. Get onto the promised land. Take your tent and be ready to move at a moment's notice. C.S. Lewis said, if you live for the things of earth, you'll never get them. If you live for heaven, you'll get it and earth thrown in as well. Jesus put it this way. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And so Abraham had his tent there between Bethel and Ai. And again, that's where we live today, between the house of God and the dump. Worshippers and sojourners in a foreign land. By the way, I don't know if you heard this recently, but it, it came out that um, illegal aliens were, were suing. There were a bunch of them getting together and, and suing the United States because they felt like the title was racist. Illegal aliens. 
It's not a racist title, it's just what you are. You're here illegally, you're an illegal alien. But you know what? We need to join the attitude of being aliens in the world. Foreigners, sojourners, who don't really live here. We're headed somewhere else. Now, watch what happens next. Genesis 11.10 Now, there was a famine in the land. So Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Now, in Scripture, you'll begin to notice this. Egypt, people always go down to Egypt. And they always go up to Jerusalem. Down to Egypt, up to Jerusalem. Why? Because Jerusalem is a picture It's a snapshot, kind of a type of heaven. It's God's city. But Egypt is a picture of the world. Egypt in scripture is always, speaks of the world. And you may notice here that in verse 10 it says there was a famine in the land and Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there. So at least he's still on his feet. But did God tell Abraham to go to Egypt? Did he say, Abram, there's a famine coming and I want you to protect your family and get on down to Egypt? No. God said, I will bless you in the land of promise. I'm going to take care of you, Abraham. Go to Canaan's land. That's where you'll be blessed. But Abraham, like so many of us, goes, Well, I know you said you'd bless me here, but over here there's food <laughs> and security and safety. I can go over here and, and you know, I'm, I'm sojourning. I'm just kind of passing through. I'll come back, Lord. But that's where the food is. And God said, All right. I'll let you grow up in your faith. I didn't send you there. I said I'd bless you right here, but if you don't trust me, go ahead and get your food down there. You're probably not going to like it. It's Egyptian food. It's kind of weird. <laughs> and so off we go, just like Abraham. It's interesting to me that the man of, fall, of faith, the man of faith falters in the area of faith. Abraham's biggest problem, though he's a great man of faith, his biggest problem had to do with his faith. Over and over and over, the faithful man is faithless. Mm-hmm. Now, in our lives, and pay attention to this, we tend to be the same way. We falter in the very area that we think we're strong. Oh, lust isn't a problem for me. Got a great marriage. Very connected to my wife. Not a lusting kind of guy. I'm very strong in that area. And that kind of person falls. Oh, drinking? Not a big deal. I'm very strong in that, you know? Very measured. I got no problem with that. And we fall. Because we tend to fall in the area that we think is our greatest strength. Why? Because we're relying on our strength. You notice in the areas that we know we have weakness, we tend not to fall as much because we're concerned about those areas. We're going to the Father for those areas. We're saying, God, I'm weak here. I can't handle this one by myself. I need your strength. And in those areas, we got that godly support. But it's the areas where we feel strong and confident. Watch out. That's the danger zone. 1 Corinthians 1.26 says, Consider your calling, brothers, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. In other words, Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.26 says, Hey, you guys were kind of dumb, and you weren't very strong, and you certainly weren't up there on the social scale. Kind of a bunch of losers. And he went on to say, But God has chosen the foolish things of the wise. So now he adds that we were foolish. He's chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame those things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen. The things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, 
Why? So that no man may boast before God. What happens when we boast? We lean on our own strength and we fall flat on our face. God doesn't want us boasting. He wants us trusting. Paul says, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Where we're weak or foolish or base or despised, we have to rely on God. And Abraham begins to learn this. But not quite yet. Look at verse 11. It came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know that you're a beautiful woman. Sarah's 65 right now. She's 65 years old. And I'm not saying, by the way, so I don't get you know a Bible thrown at me, I'm not saying that if you're 65 you can't be a beautiful woman. But she was a beautiful woman. She was impressive to the point that Abram was a little, oh, faithless. See now, I know you're a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. And they will kill me. But they will let you live. This is what they did, folks. In the day and age, if a ruler saw a woman who was beautiful, who was married, he just killed her husband and took her as his wife. He had the prerogative to do so. And Abram was very concerned about this. Verse 13, please say, Abram says to Sarai, please say that you're my sister so that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. And it came about, when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her, and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. You know, I'm thinking that wasn't the best move for their marriage on Abram's part. I was Sarai, and I say, yeah, I'm his sister, and off I go to Pharaoh's harem. And Abram's going, (laughs) glad I'm okay. (laughs) Verse 16, it gets worse. He treated Abram well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. So now Abram's going, woohoo, look at my stuff, this is great. (laughs) He's out living it up. He's got all kinds of new riches in addition to all his other stuff while Sarah is being dressed and readied for Pharaoh. Not a pretty sight for her. This was, um, by the way, a half lie, because Sarai was actually his half-sister. We'll see that in Genesis 20, verse 12. Before you gross out too much, may I remind you that it was okay up until Leviticus. It was all right. This was kind of how God planned for the species to grow and propagate, and it grosses us out now. Especially those of you who have brothers and sisters in the room, you're going, Ugh. but Genesis chapter 20, verse 12 does tell us that Sarai was Abraham's half-sister. So this is a half-lie. What do you mean a half-lie? Well, it's the right information, but it's the wrong implication. I would put it to you that this is the worst kind of lie, because at least a bald-faced lie is out there and the whole thing's untrue. This is partially true. It's called in the Bible a false witness. Technically, it's the truth, but in reality, it's shading something. It's deceptive. It's what the media, by the way, did with Howard Dean. Now, I'm not a big fan of Howard Dean or anything, but amazing what's happened in the Democratic race that Howard Dean gets up after losing, and he tries to rally his troops, and that's, I really believe that's all he was trying to do. We're going to push on to Ohio, and we're going to go to California, and then he starts shouting all this stuff, and the media played it over and over and over and over, saying, is this guy psychotic? Has this guy got a problem? Is this guy presidential? I don't think he's presidential. What do you think? And the people bought it, and Howard Dean is history because of false witness. 
Let me give one that hits a little closer to home. It was false witness that landed Jesus before Pilate. Matthew 26 verse 59 tells us the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. And they did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and listened to what they said. This man stated, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. That's exactly what Jesus said. That is not what he meant. They knew it. Everybody knew it. Jesus said, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days, referring to his death and his resurrection. They took that and they used it as a false witness to say, see, he is putting himself against the temple and against us and he's claiming to be God and he's got to be done away with. It was false witness. By the way, the Jewish leaders knew that this was a messianic statement. But here's the catch. Jesus said it, but it's not what he meant. At that time, he was talking about the temple of his body. At a later date, Jesus will rebuild the temple in his glory, Zechariah chapter 6 tells us. Well, that's the way of the world. The half-lies, bent truths, the false witness, and Abram was somewhat used to the way of the world. Look at verse 14. And we just read that. Basically, Abram ended up in good shape. Now go on to verse 18. Verse 18 tells us, or 17, sorry, the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And then Pharaoh called Abram and said, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. That doesn't really seem fair to me. The Lord struck Pharaoh? Pharaoh didn't know. He thought Sarai was Abram's sister. He wasn't doing anything wrong here. And this, by the way, wouldn't be the first time that God struck a Pharaoh with plagues. Getting into the book of Exodus, we'll see that one happening. Well, this doesn't seem right. Listen, just because you think something is the truth does not make it the truth. Just because Pharaoh wanted to believe that Sarai was just Abraham's sister didn't change the fact that, you know, they were married. Truth is truth, whether you want it to be truth or not. And so, it doesn't seem fair because Pharaoh gets reamed and Abraham gets off scot-free. Everything's great for Abram. He's out there hanging out with the chickens and the cows and the stuff. Sarah, Sarai is in the harem. Verse 18, going on. Pharaoh called Abram and said... What have you done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? So that took her for my wife. Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And verse 20, check this out. Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. Now, I need a couple more minutes. Stay with me on this. I know we said we'd start early so we could get out of here earlier, and now we're getting right around at the same time we get out of here. Just hang on. I do. That's it. I want to allow myself more time. Sarai, and I want you to keep a finger in, in uh, Genesis 12 and flip to 1 Peter chapter 3. It's the last place we're going to go tonight. 1 Peter chapter 3. I want you to hear this, especially ladies. Guys, we'll, we'll get ours in just a second. 1 Peter chapter 3. You will discover here that Sarai is the one woman in Scripture who is given as a picture or an example of what a Christian wife is supposed to be like. So if you have any interest in that, ladies, of what a Christian wife is supposed to be like, look at 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 1. In the same way, you wives, be submissive, 
to your husbands. <laughs> so that even if any of them are disobedient, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. That's that's amazing. That right there is exactly. By the way, if you are a Christian woman with an unbelieving husband, that's how you win them. Not by badgering them. Not by every Sunday giving them the guilt trip. You know, why did you come to church with me ever? None of that works. What works, the Bible says, is winning them without a word by the behavior. <coughs> Verse 2, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Ladies, you don't have to call your husbands Lord. And you, but, you know, in my case, if Cheryl's in here, is she in here? That'd be okay. That'd be okay. Um, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. A beautiful woman in God's eyes is wearing the clothing of submission. And I put it to submission to her husband. But listen, ladies, it's not because your husband deserves it. It's because your father desires it. Not because he's done such a great job being the man of the house. He may be a complete doofus. But that doesn't change. If you want to be a woman of God, it does not change your responsibility... To live the way God is calling you to live. Sarah reverenced her husband even when he was goofing it up. She still called her husband Lord later on, even though, and you're going to see this, it happens not once, but twice, that Abraham lies and says she's my sister so that he won't be killed and he prospers and she goes to Pharaoh's harem. Two times! And Sarah still called him Lord. Why is that? Listen, God protected Sarah. In this story and in stories to come, Sarah goes to the harem, but in the preparation to be ready to go on to Pharaoh for the night, the night never happens. God steps in. And ladies, the Bible seems pretty clear on this one. God will protect you if you will submit. What about abuse? Okay, we're not talking about abuse. When we're talking about an absolute violation of the marital vow, that's another discussion for another time. But in a marriage scenario, ladies, if you will submit to your husband, you have two truths that we see in Sarah. One that God protects, but another one, God will prosper your family. As happened with Abraham. Oh, great. So I get to go to the harem so my dumb husband gets prospered. Is that what you're telling me? That's exactly what I'm telling you. But remember, God will defend you. God will protect you because you're living for Him. Look at that last verse again. This is interesting. Because we say, okay, so good old Abram, he's over there just having a field day. Well, was he? Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. What belonged to him? Go back to verse 16. He treated Abram well for her sake, gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants. So what's the big deal? 
Folks, out of this situation, Abram did not get off so easily because one of the things that Abram got in this deal was a female servant for Sarah. Her name was Hagar. Hagar eventually would be the woman who Sarah says, Look, I'm barren. I can't have a child. So sleep with my maidservant. And Abram, stupid, Abram does and produces a child named Ishmael. Now don't think for a moment that though they had Isaac later, that Abram did not have feelings for his son Ishmael. As a matter of fact, Genesis 17 verse 18, when Abram realized that God was going to send him a son through Sarah, he literally cried out, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God, how about Ishmael, my son? Let him be the promised seed. And God said, No, Abraham, it's not going to be through Ishmael. It will be through this seed, through your wife Sarah. But Abraham was strapped with pain and heartache. And not Abraham only. But the children of Abraham through all history would pay the price for Abraham's faithlessness as the line divided between Isaac and Ishmael, Arabs and Jews. And the fighting continues to this day. The blood feud. Because Abram did not obey. God said in essence to Abraham, Look, Abe, this is your plan, this whole Ishmael thing. Not mine. I have a plan and I will work out my plan. Husbands, if we blow it in the leading of our families, it is likely the repercussions of our sins will go on to our children. And the only way to break that cycle is in Jesus Christ. The only way to stop that pain is by ourselves giving ourselves in complete submission to the Lord. Here's a great saying to lean on, by the way. If it doesn't work at home, it doesn't work. And God looks at each of us, whether we're bankers or lawyers or candlestick makers or pastors, whatever it is that you do with your life, God would say, hey, make it work at home first. Let that be the place of your priority. Let that be the place where your heart beats first. Care for your children. Care for your spouse. Love God in this way. Well, this is just the beginning of a fantastic, amazing drama. But I'm so glad that God chose to work through Abraham. It gives me amazing assurance and it really gives me a sense of God's grace. Romans chapter 4 verse 1 tells us, What shall we say then? That Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found. If Abraham was justified by work, well, he has something to boast about, but not before God. But what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Same deal for us tonight. If you will but believe in God, he's going to credit you with righteousness through his grace. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the story of Abram that we're just starting to get our feet wet with, starting to get into this. I pray that you will, in the following weeks, increase our faith. That is my heart's cry to you tonight, Lord. Increase our faith. As you walked with Abram from his childlike faith to his fully mature faith, please do the same for us. We're in all sorts of places tonight. Some of us with a very young childlike faith and some with faith that's been matured over the years and many of us with childishness in our faith in different places that we just need to grow up. But Father, I thank you for your grace and your patience that you allow us the chance to do that. So increase our faith over the weeks to come. We pray 
In Jesus' name, amen.